48 hours later, Drancer, no games, but lots of practice and still lots to talk about around this Vancouver Canucks team as we welcome the VIPs to another edition of the VanCast. Um, lots of practice the last two days, and uh, it's it's been interesting to watch. I mean, the forward lines look fairly similar. They've brought up uh, a player from Abbotsford to uh, work in the fourth line on the from the taxi squad. Uh, and we've got some players that are back in Vancouver. They took a medivac to get to Vancouver a couple of days ago. So Brock Besser back in the country along with Jason Dickinson and Phil Giuseppe and Justin Dowling. So things are slowly moving forward as we get to a Saturday game, which may or may not happen. Yeah, so welcome to the VIPs. We'll do 35 minutes of previewing the Ottawa Senators-Vancouver <laughs> Canucks game that may or may not occur on Saturday. Um, buckle up! Buckle well, up some, for some, some good lots news. Of Kachuk, lots of Kachuk talk. Well, some good news, though, because the Sens did get three of their players taken out of protocol. So from yep. nine, they go down to six. So that makes it even that much more likely that we're going to have a game because yep. they haven't had anybody added to the protocol in the last two games. So let's go. Saturday. The Senators don't look like they'll have to take a medevac out to Vancouver on Friday. <laughs> thank goodness. Um, should be some Canucks hockey. And I think that's a really crucial game for them. Like, I think having that tune up game before they go out on that road trip is really key like you wouldn't want to get thrown right into four and six against four of the best teams in hockey without that game you know like that would be brutal that would be brutal for them how would you even evaluate this team and and i do think how they fare in the southeastern united states is huge like we know what this canucks team has done right we know that they're invincible now they're like boris from goldeneye right um, <laughs> but are you, you know, to be, are you trying to be positive or negative? Because the VIPs have you pegged one factual, way. invincible, invincible over the last nine, right? But but I'm, I'm gonna I'm trying to I'm trying to be clear headed as clear headed as I can with a team that is on an eight zero and one run and has sort of given themselves a shot at a shot now, right? Yeah, yeah, and. And yet, you know, for all that they've done, for all that they've resuscitated their season. Right. We've seen them do it against a lot of teams on the second leg of back to backs and against a lot of backup goaltenders. Right. Uh, We haven't seen them do it against elite teams on the road. Right. Like we just haven't seen that. And I think it would have been a tough spot for Jim Rutherford, for example, for Bruce Boudreau, for the people who really have a lot of skin in the game in terms of getting it right in evaluating this team right now, right? To go down to Florida and play Tampa and then the Panthers and then back to back against the Caps and the, and the Carolina Hurricanes without, you know, with, with 10 games or 10 days off between games, like that would have sucked. I think getting that Senators game in, regardless of the outcome, like at least means that the Canucks should be somewhat somewhat um, back in the flow by the time they get into the meat of, of this, of this really crucial Southeastern U S road trip that, that I think is just going to tell us a ton about the team. And, and I'm not even talking about, you know, the playoff hopes. I know uh, Boudreaux was on um, with our friends, Ray and Dregs and discussed going 500 over their next eight as sort of his like litmus test. Like we need to do at least that to still have a chance at the playoffs. I think that's right. I think that's a really good take, a really smart 
way of looking at it from the head coach, especially because he also gave them a low enough bar, right? That like you, you're going to be able to keep feeling good two weeks from now, even if you just play 500 hockey. Like I like that. I like a lot of that approach. Boudreaux is very sharp about how he slices things up. We know this. The thing about that trip though, is it's, it's not even about results so much as it's about what the club's performance, right? How they withstand that elite competition, like what that tells us about who they are, right? Like that's what really, that's what I'm really fascinated to see over the course of the next 10 to 15 days. And I think it matters that they get that Senators game in just, just as an opportunity to like put everything they've been working on in practice with Boudreaux over the course of the past few days, um, you know, into practice. Well, for me, I, I think the result does matter. And I say that because, you know, you're looking at a team that you're clearly better than given your current form. On top of that, you're looking at a team that's been, you know, decimated by COVID. And, you know, I, I look at it, it, you know, from a senator standpoint, when you hear the comments coming out of there, it almost feels like they, they believe they're last year's Canucks. I mean, not in terms of symptoms, but this is shaking their organization because they didn't go through it. Right. Whereas, you know, and it's a well, large it is vol- their second COVID outbreak of the year. Yeah, and it's a large volume of players, right? So, um, you know, the Canucks are in a better position to withstand things and be in a position to have success in that game coming off of all this practice with their guys outside of two, right? You know, you don't count DiGiuseppe and Dowling as, as kind of regulars yet, but it's only two guys that they've been missing and they've been managing to have success without those guys. So I think there's a different level of expectation. You know, and all of that said, the Canucks came off a, a devastating COVID break a year ago and still found a way to beat the Leafs in the first game, right? So totally not yeah, not to yeah. say that be- not to say that the Sens can't, but it, it certainly is setting up as a bit of a letdown if the Canucks don't win this game, you know, and as yeah. much as you want to put your sims, your systems in and get comfortable with those, you still need results because right now, early in this nine game run under Boudreaux, it was almost like you didn't know what you didn't know, right? Right. Now, all of a sudden, you know it, you, you can't screw it up now, right? Like sometimes you're better when you don't know what you don't know, if you know what I mean. I, I do know what you mean, especially because now like there weren't expectations then. You know what I mean? There, there was nothing expectations wise on this team. They were just sort of expected to slink away, right? Sure. Yeah. And, and now, and now they're not going to be sneaking up on anybody. Right? And, you, like you, now, you went th- and you went through one break. And had success coming out of it. Yeah. So you'll be expected to have some, at least in this game before you tr- you travel, because you know how daunting that's going to be. Yeah. And then and then you get down to Florida where, you know, the Lightning and the, and the Florida Panthers pick their teeth with opponents, right? I mean, it is not a, it is not a nice trip to, a, to, the, to the Sunshine State in, in January anymore, right? Like those teams are absolute buzzsaws. And then Carolina and then Washington and then UC Soros and the Nashville Predators, who are the second hottest team in the West behind only the Canucks. Uh, we'll see if that's still the case. If it is when the Canucks hit, um, you know, Tootsies, <laughs> I mean, that would be a remarkable. Then then we're talk, having a very different conversation. Then it's not then it's no longer like, what is this team? It's oh, my God. Right. So. Um, no, it's a, it's a really tremendous opportunity that the Canucks have next week. It's been really interesting to see how they've managed practice. Some of these tempos in practice have been pretty pretty brutal, to be honest with you, Farhan. Um, I, I thought these like the practice on 
Tuesday was very like teaching, like seemed like a pretty low paced educational type practice, right? A lot of systems work, a lot of complex drills, a lot of restarting a drill and letting the same group go again to make sure they got it right. Like a lot of, uh, it was a download. That's what it was. Tuesday's practice felt like a download for, you know, 45 minutes. And then the last 15 minutes included this three on two area drill that everyone, when they finished was sort of doubled over tired. Right. And then, and then followed by this, sort of sequence of shuttle runs that looked just completely grueling. And I was just like, Oh boy. And then, and then, you know, the practice on Monday was so, was so hard, was so grueling, had so many back checker drills and so many of those bag skate by another name drills that guys were like lying on the ice prone at the end, joking about, you know, the forties, like doing the Yalevi and, uh, <laughs> And, uh, you know, like, I think they, I literally think they explained the joke to Boudreaux toward the end of practice. Like, I'm pretty sure I saw that happen. Um, so, you know, it's been interesting to see that emphasis and Boudreaux discussed it on Monday explicitly said, basically, you know, um, you know, we, we need to maintain our fitness, but it, but it has looked like it, it's, they put in work this week. Let's, let's put it that way. I, I'm not shocked that they have a day off on Wednesday. They need it considering the pace of those practices. Yeah, no question. Uh, don't you remember the old days when you were in Florida and teams would like show up as early as they possibly could spend a day at South Beach, uh, you know, yes. just hang out and get ready for the game. You're like it's, it's pretty different now. How is Ole Levy doing down there in your old stomping grounds? I don't know. <laughs> um, I mean, I haven't seen him play. <laughs> like he, uh, I, I track the Panthers more closely than I track most teams. Not not just because of my relationships down there, and I'll be pretty disappointed not to go. Right? Like, I, I mean, I was looking forward to um, getting back down there, seeing some friends. But um, but you know, I, I track them also because they're super fun. Right? Like, I don't know. Did you see that Calgary Panthers game yesterday? I saw highlights of it. I, haven't, oh, I didn't see the whole game. Brilliant. That's as good it is. That's as good as it gets. That's like a, I mean, the first period when Calgary was still hanging around was awesome. But I mean, Florida's just such a tsunami, right? They just they just wash over teams. It's it's awesome to watch. I, I you know my they're they just have so many good players. Far on. They just have so many good players. Like their fourth line is you know is like a bad team second line. And a good team's third line. Their third line is a good team. You know what? They kind of remind me of the Lightning, where it's like uh, last year's Lightning, where it's just like you could take so many different guys from that team and they'd be the best player, certainly a top line player on on a different club, right? I I mean, you go up and down their lineup and that's the case. But Yolevi's only played, I think, three or four games, right? Like he hasn't been in the lineup much. He hasn't played a lot when he has. Um, you know, uh, the Canucks are getting more mileage out of Yuho Lamico, frankly, uh, Lammy, um, than, uh, than the Panthers are out of Yalevi. And I don't think that's a shock. No, I, I don't think it is either. Um, it's amazing that the trip being that daunting, it's got to kill you if you're a Canadian hockey fan that, you know, the destination is Florida, no state taxes, no awful media and two teams that are winning now. <laughs> no awful media. Right? Come on. 
Yeah, really. I mean, no, no, very little media at all, right? I mean, that's there, there are some really hardworking hockey reporters and sports reporters um, and like local anchors who do a really good job of of trying to cover the Panthers as best they can in bad times. But look, I think there's I think there's real attention on the Panthers right now. Um, but yeah, I mean. There, there definitely is media in in Florida. They're just not as awful as us. <laughs> do, do, do they do they cheer for the Dolphins to lose? Who, the, like just the, the teams? When you were there, were you like you couldn't wait till the Dolphins lost so that you could just kind of get on with being a bit of the focus? Um, well, I, the Dolphins were not good when I was down there, right? Yeah, um, no, they weren't. But but no, I never had I never had real enmity for for the Dolphins. That they were always so. They were always so helpful, you know, like the Dolphins PR is like the best, like the absolute best. They took such good care of our players and helped us out with so many different things that, no, I didn't have any, I literally never beefed with the Dolphins once. There you go. <laughs> truly, truly. Like I actually considered being a Finns fan. I was like, should I, should I make this a thing for myself? Um, but, uh, but yeah, no, I, I couldn't, I couldn't quite go that far ultimately, but um, no, no, I never beefed with the Dolphins ever. I just sort of accepted the reality that, you know, after bowl season ended, you check the NHL standings and how well the Panthers are doing in those standings sort of determined how well ticket sales would go in the second half, right? Because it's like no one in the market really pays attention to you until the Hurricanes and the Dolphins are done. There you go. And, uh, and you know, we, we know now that you can't be a Dolphins fan because you're clearly a Bengals fan after Jamar Chase gave you 55 fantasy points. Well, but yeah. LSU is a really big deal in my family, right? Like, Yeah, uh, you told me that. Yeah, like my brother-in-law's from Baton Rouge. Um, so so LSU's become like an adopted team of, of our family in, uh, in college football. It's been a bad season, obviously, this year. So, um, you know, Joe Burrow, like I, I was – you can go back out. Joe Burrow is like my guy. And uh, and I've, I have become a quiet Bengals fan. And then I owned Jamar Chase and Higgins and Joe Mixon this year. Like I really doubled down on the Bengals thinking they were underrated because they were going to be an elite offense this year. And that came to pass for me in the fantasy playoffs as I won my league. Um, very excited about it, Farhan. Very well, into football right now. I gotta say, like I'm, I'm watching a ton of football right now. It's, it's, well, it's great. We better, we better pull this thing back to hockey before everybody says, "Here goes Lolji talking football again on a podcast." <laughs> well, except it's me. <laughs> except it's you because I haven't done it yet. Hey, uh, so let's let's circle back. You mentioned that Bruce was on Ray and Dreg's show, and we're gonna have to get him on our show sooner than later here. But um, what what was your what were your takeaways beyond the scheduling breakdown? Was there anything else interesting that that uh, you want to bring to our listeners? Um, I mean, I, I just find the way that he talks about Tyler Myers, right? The way yeah, that he I mean, talks about Tyler Myers being a guy he attacked as a as a coach in, in Minnesota. Um, you know, he's reiterated that a few times, right? Like, I used to go after this guy. I wonder, like, I don't think Boudreaux's just being, like, flip there, right? I think he's challenging him. He's got to be, right? Well, and I mean, he would have heard the reports as well and seen it himself when he was in Minnesota. But I mean, certainly we haven't regarded Tyler Myers as a guy that's necessarily worthy of his contract, right? That a, a player that is a solid NHLer, but is certainly better served in a bottom pair role as opposed to the minutes he's been getting van, in Vancouver. And so, yeah, you, but you, you don't have a lot of options. So you've got to push and see and see if there's any more mileage you can get out of him. So I don't think he's being flippant at all. 
to your point, I, I think he had a lot of the same views that the analytics community had, you know, when he signed his contract in Van and also just really what his form has shown up until Boudreaux's takeover. And now and now Tyler Myers has been incredible. Um, I mean, really, under Boudreaux, this has been a really remarkable stretch of games for Myers. Um, although, although, you know, and we've talked about this, right? I've talked about Myers as a guy who can give you credible top pair performance for 10 games, but what happens next, right? I talked about him as a guy who can give you credible top four performance for 50 games, but then there's those other 30, right? Um, if this Canucks run is built on what Myers is doing, you know, I, I don't know that that's, I don't know that that's great news, right? Like they, they're, that that's something that I don't know that, that it'll hold as the sample expands, as opposed to, um, you know, Oliver Ekman Larson, right. Who has bounced back in a massive way. Did you see, uh, Elliot Friedman had a stat that 500 players in the NHL, uh, of players who played at least 500 minutes, only Oliver Ekman Larson has been on the ice for fewer than 10 goals against. Right. So that's a pretty remarkable defensive track record. Um, there's some good fortune in that there has to be for defensive players, right? It's, it's, you know, he's got a 964 on ice save percentage. So, um, you know, a lot of credit to the goalies too, for, for what Ekman Larson has accomplished. But, you know, what matters is that Ekman Larson, when he's on the ice, like last year in Arizona, you know, the Coyotes were surrendering far more expected goals with Ekman Larson on the ice than they were with any other defender this year in Vancouver, Ekman Larson and Quinn Hughes are on the ice for the fewest expected goals uh, as a rate stat among regular Canucks defenders, with the exception of Tucker Pullman. And Tucker Pullman's on the ice for no expected goals for, so the ratio's like off, right? Even though Tucker Pullman's defensive results are better, um, he also takes stuff off the table offensively. We all know this, right? So it's not as impressive as what Hughes and Ekman Larson are doing. And so you get to this sort of point where you at least have one top four lefty uh, on the ice for what? 40 minutes a night at five on five in Hughes and, and Ekman Larson, who are both just throwing fireballs, like absolutely, absolutely hauling fastballs because Ekman Larson's defensive bounce back has been massive. Not a huge surprise. I don't think because as bad as last season was for him in Arizona, it was truly brutal, Right. The, the couple years before that, he'd been, at, at the very least, like capable top four level guy, right? Uh, he's been that for Vancouver, and he's shown himself to be a really polished, classy, defensive defenseman. Um, what, what really is, impresses me, though, is Hughes has had a similar kind of bounce back in terms of the defensive side, where teams aren't generating much against the Canucks when Hughes is on the ice. He's not just playing high, like he's not playing high event hockey. He's, he's actually controlling games in a way where the Canucks are not surrendering a ton. That's been true all season with 43 on the ice. And that's a huge, like that's a really good starting point for this club now in that you've got those two guys controlling play. And, and while Myers has been hot, they've really have, they've had a big three uh, in terms of their defenders. And we've talked about that a bit, right? The, the big three in terms of ice time. Um, I, I don't know that I'd bet on Myers sustaining this level of form over the balance of the season, over the second half. But I, but I would bet on OEL and Hughes having shown us something real. And, and I do think that that at least gives the Canucks a shot, right? And having a blue line that's probably still among the league's worst in terms of the quality of their personnel. 
but at least has a shot of performing like an average group. Yeah, and I mean, even in the case of Myers, you might not expect current results, but if he can even find a level somewhere between what he was doing you know, two months ago and what he's doing now, I think the Canucks are that much farther ahead. I do want to get into more um, on Hughes with you. We're going to take a quick break first. And then, uh, yeah, he had some interesting things to say after practice yesterday. Yeah, I did. Uh, let's talk about Quinn Hughes. You know, he was he was asked afterwards about that defensive commitment that he has made this offseason. He talked about some of the players that he practiced with in the offseason. You know, they'd get into three-on-three games, and he just didn't try to play offense. He just tried to defend. You know, and, and you you go through varying sides of this because his brothers certainly defended him in the offseason. You know, when, when his defensive play was so criticized, they you know, they all said that that's garbage. It wasn't that bad. But – when the player himself says that my focus this entire offseason was defending, that tells you it was that bad. And the fact is, is that for him, it's a point of pride. He's a hyper competitive kid and he didn't want to hear that anymore. And even though he didn't necessarily crave being on the penalty kill, I asked him about this afterwards. It still bothered him that he was told he couldn't do it. You know, and, and there's a there's a difference there, right? It's it's not like I ne- just don't necessarily want to do it because I need more of these types of hard minutes. Don't tell me I can't do it. I want to decide if I can do it. You know, and previously Travis Green said no. You know, coaches generally how they spin it is they say I just want to put him in positions to succeed, right? But for the player, what do you hear? You hear what's true, and that is that they don't think I can succeed in this defensive capacity. And it mattered to him. And and it's showing, look, he's not going to ever win those battles down low, but there's different ways for him to still have success on the PK, to still have success in his own end. And for him, you know, the best success that we saw in his first year was just keep the puck out of your own end, right? The way you exit the puck, the way you get to it first and move it. So we're seeing all of that. And, and it, um, you know, it looks good on him. Yeah. Well, I mean, also in this market, right, we know we literally have 22 and 33 having put on a clinic on this for 20 years in this market. But you can defend 150 feet from from your net by controlling games, by by being on offense your entire shift, by having uh, by exercising gravity, right, by by being a, a player who has the ability to influence where the game is played. You're you're, you're also defending you know, at, at the same time that you're holding the puck and, and Quinn Hughes is capable of doing that. Um, you know, I, I kind of thought his defensive struggles last year were a little bit overstated. He, he clearly had some moments where, where he struggled, but you know, I, I mean, we've seen how he can defend effectively and it's getting in on hands. It's, you know, denying entries. It's, the escapability in his own end. It's it's holding the puck and and making sure that the ice is tilted in, in a favorable way for Vancouver whenever he's on. And he can do those things. And, and but he's the bad them. was bad though. The the bad last year looked exceptionally bad. Like yeah. there were times when he would get physically manhandled. There were times where he just couldn't exit it cleanly and got got caught back there. And totally. It, you know, it didn't look good. So you're right. Like it maybe was overstated, but from a from a visual perspective, the bad looked really, really bad. Now, one thing that that Boudreaux talked about, he was asked about whether or not Quinn can win a Norris Trophy, and he said, you know, there's a number of things he's got right in terms of his ability to control play, the number of minutes he logs, the heavy matchups he gets. It's all there, but he doesn't necessarily score as many goals. Yeah, he generates points and and he's responsible for goals, but he doesn't necessarily score as many himself, which voters seem to be enamored with with defensemen when they're voting on that award. Do you see it that way? Because, you know, I don't know how much that affected him 
in the Calder because we both agree that he should have won the Calder given what he meant to the performance of the Canucks that year versus Kale McCarr, who, while he was an exceptional player, didn't have necessarily the impact on the Avs that Hughes did had that Hughes did on the Canucks. So do you think that there's any carryover there in terms of how he's perceived as both a guy that can physically defend, but more importantly, as a guy that necessarily scores goals as it relates to the Norris Trophy. Yeah, I mean, Kel McCarr is going to be a, a juggernaut to beat. He already has 15 goals. Like, he's going to score 30. He's going to score 25 goals this season at least. At least. Um, so, I, I mean, there's a lot of ground to make up. Plus, you've got an elite player who does an awful lot of what Quinn Hughes does in New York, which is on the biggest stage, right? And that's going to be a tough opponent to beat, too, in Norris voting uh, for years and years to come. So, you know, it's going to take a lot. The Norris is really hard to win, like really hard to win. And this generation of defenders, there's a lot of special players among them, like a lot. And so, you know, I, I mean, I think he's going to be at the level where he's considered for an awfully long time. But... It's going to take one of those seasons where a lot of things fall into place to win one. And that's, you know, not saying as much about Quinn Hughes as it is saying a lot about how hard it is to win a major NHL award, right? Like you have to be the best in the world uh, among players playing defense. Um, Did you see, hey, by the way, did you see over the holidays, Wyatt had this big take on why they should have the Wayne Gretzky award for the most assists? I I saw I saw the headline. I didn't I didn't dive into it. Yeah, I mean it was just it was just him ranting on Twitter about how they need a Wayne Gretzky award for the player with the most assists, and he was going through the history of how often players who win the Art Ross and the um, and the Maurice Richard Trophy, right? How like rare that is, right? And then how rare it would be to hit the triple crown to win all three, right? It would 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 have happened only four times in NHL history, and he's like, we should recognize that. That's a cool thing to recognize. And I kind of agree with him, particularly because, you know, um, Art Ross, like, what does that mean to a hockey fan? What does the name Art Ross mean to a contemporary hockey fan at this point? Right. What does what does James Norris mean to a contemporary hockey fan at this point? Right. Like, I I, I mean, I, I kind of think that the NHL awards could use a couple of a couple more categories in part because it would be cool for contemporary hockey fans to have awards that recognize Gretzky and, you know, in, in the case of what I'm about to suggest, a guy like Bobby Orr, right? Like the, the, the greats of the game that aren't, you know, in black and white that we sort of remember being colorized, right? That, that we remember yeah. in a little bit of a more contemporary sense that we heard about from our fathers, right? Or, or from our mothers, as it were. And so, you know, I do sort of think that it makes sense. Like the Norris now... To win the Norris now, you have to at least play on the penalty kill a bit, right? That's key. You got to at least play on the penalty kill a bit, but you also got to put up points. You're not going to win. You know, I had someone in my mentions after Friedman had the Ekman Larson stat. They were like, could Ekman Larson get considered for the Norris? And it's like, he has six points. He has six points. Like, no, you're not going to get considered for the Norris with six points. Like, period, right? You need to be a top 10 scoring defenseman to win the Norris. Um, You also need to have some narrative heft and you need to have pretty good fancy stats these days too, because 
you know, those arguments are going to be made and they're going to reach awards voters and they might not sway the ultimate outcome, but they're going to have some influence on them. So it's like you need a lot now to win the Norris uh, voted on by the PHWA. But it, we should have something ready to go to recognize defensive defensemen, in my view, and productive offensive defensemen. Like, I do think that makes sense, especially because of the way that stats do such a poor job of capturing defensive effectiveness. I do think it makes well, sense. Well, like, we also have a we also have a defensive forward award. Right. We have def- exactly exactly like we should make the James Norris trophy the best defensive defenseman and we should introduce a Bobby Orr award that goes to the best offensive defenseman. Um, for me, it makes sense to split it. Like, especially because I just think it would resonate, you know, the idea that the idea that the Chris, the Chris Tanev award. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, I think, I think you'd go Rod, Rod Langway or something. Right. But there like, you, you know, uh, or uh, yeah. Uh, or maybe it's a, you know, it's a Dano Chara award. Uh, who knows? But the, you know, whether it's Langway, whether it's an or what have you, um, you know, I think it would be cool to split it. And I think it would be cool for Kale McCarr and Quinn Hughes to spend a decade sort of competing for the or. And I think it would be cool, too, as guys like that level up defensively that one year they get considered for the defensive defenseman award. Right. Like, I think it would just it would just add some intrigue, um, add some add something that would be fun to see in the event that the NHL updated their awards. And I think that's long overdue personally. With Canuck defensemen, um, we saw the regular pairs for much of practice yesterday, but then we saw a heavy amount of of a rotation that included Ekman Larson playing with Pullman and Shen playing with Myers. Um, do you, is that just Bruce just rotating through seven guys, or does he actually want to take a look at what he might have there for various points in games? Um, yeah, I think it was just rotating through various sets of guys. I think you have to be... I wonder, I wonder too, how much of it is like, Hey, we might lose a guy for five days, you know, with no notice, right. Especially once we go to the States, like who knows, right. I wonder how much of it is just like, Hey, let's make sure we're all playing with each other. Right. Well, because you didn't do that with the forward lines, right. The forward line stayed as is. Yeah. But the forwards are used to playing with other people. Uh, yeah, fair enough. Forward lines get shuffled all the time. Um, defenders like, you know, Pullman and OEL haven't played a ton together this season, even though that was sort of what we expected to be what the Canucks entered this season using, um, you know, Shen and Myers, how much, how many minutes have they spent together? Probably some like bad changes that resulted in them getting <laughs> pinned for a bit, maybe, you know, like stuff yeah, like yeah. that, but it's like not, not intentionally. So I wonder how much of it was that, um, was sort of just, just, uh, just a, an element of like making sure there's some flow between teammates. I asked Boudreaux about the four checks in specifics, right? Uh, yeah. And asked Horvat about it as well. And, you know, they talked about how they wanted to keep the third forward high a little bit. So the defensemen knew they could pinch and they would have some support. Um, Boudreaux talked after about comparing what was happening to a prevent defense and how he wants to be on the attack. And he thinks the players like it because you generate goals off it. But at the same time, it's it's a grind of a way to play for 60 minutes, right? I mean, is, is this – right now, it is working for this group. The change-up is working. But is this the style of play this forward group has meant to play all along and they just weren't getting a chance to do it? Hmm, it's an interesting one. I think, yes. I think they. I think this team needs to play more aggressively than they were this season under Green. And they were a more aggressive team in the past. Certainly, they were in 1920. 
when they had success. Um, you know, I, I think they, I think to really do it effectively, though, you're going to need a higher quality of defenseman capable of springing you, you know, a little more intentionally as well. The, the part of the system that I'm not sure uh, about in terms of a long-term fit for this forward group is the, is the, it's not the forechecking. I think this group is good at that. I think they've got the awareness to do that. It's the, it's actually the neutral zone battles. It's the punt, it's the punt and hunt stuff. It's the outnumber in the neutral zone and try and get rush chances that way. That's the part of the game that I'm not sure they're perfectly well suited to. And I'm curious to see how that evolves. Yeah, I mean, when you look at it right now, and I see players like Tyler Mott, obviously it's something that, you know, really works for his game. I see some of the young guys. I see Nils Hoaglander really having some success with it. I see Connor Garland having success yeah. with it. I look at a, a Tanner Pearson who, while he checks well, he might not have the foot speed to get there fast enough or to, to you know, to get back fast enough, even though he's a hyper-conscious player. You know, there's some guys in that forward group, like I said, I think it works for, and others that, I, you know, I'm not sure it necessarily does, but... Look, collectively right now, it's working. So you keep riding it as long as you can. Um, it's certainly something Boudreaux believes in. And, you know, he he just, he thinks it's a more fun way to play. Yeah. Well, and, and I think that's a, that's a part of this that matters a lot for a coach like Boudreaux, right? For a coach who's a little less uh, systems or detail oriented, frankly, right? Than the guy he replaced in, in Travis Green, right? Like one of Boudreaux's great strengths as a coach, I think, is that Keeps it simple, keeps it fun, right? Um, and that matters over the course of a long season where, you know, guys are around each other all the time. The pace of games, it's like a conveyor belt. You're kind of like on a hamster wheel. You know what I mean? Like it can get – so if it's every game, it's like, hey, we need to do – you know, the, you're being drilled in like we need to anticipate this from the other team and da, 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 you know, like if it's too detailed, it can overwhelm overwhelm people, Right. I mean, that makes sense. You'd rather just go out and initiate and have fun and be disciplined about a few basic principles, right? And that's sort of that's sort of kind of what a player's coach is versus guys who are more technical or guys who are hard asses or, or what have you, right? Uh, I mean, I don't think Green was a hard ass coach, but I do think he was a deeply technical coach. For sure. Um, and so, you know, I think that's part of the strength of hiring a guy like in, in that mold. And that's a Boudreaux or... You know, a Gerard Gallant would be sort of a, another example of, of a coach who's in that mold um, versus what the Canucks were working under previously. And, and look, I think that matters, right? I think and we talked about this after the after the changes, right? That you, if you bring in a guy guys like in midseason, you might get the bounce, right? You, you really need to bring in that guy. Because if you bring in another systems guy or a hard ass, you're, you're never getting the bounce in midseason. Um, we saw that with Sutter in Calgary, right? Like the team immediately went to control. Like they found a new gear at five on five. The underlying numbers were pornographic, but it didn't translate into wins <laughs> right off the bat. Um, not and certainly not the same way it has for Boudreaux in Vancouver. And and I do think that's you know an important part of what we're seeing in terms of the 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 vibes, the the different vibes out of this team. Canucks, meanwhile, again, they play Ottawa on Saturday. After that, they get out on a five-game road trip in the U.S., Florida, Tampa, Carolina, Washington, Nashville, the who's who, and then they come back to play Florida. So a lot going on in the next couple of weeks. Hey, listen, before we go, got to ask you about the Oilers. Wow. And now now, and now, Connor McDavid in the COVID protocol isn't going to play. Tyson Berry. 
Yeah, his massive game tonight against the Leafs that was supposed to draw a lot of national attention all of a sudden is now doing so for a very different reason. But just the the wheels have fallen off in a big way. Dave Tippett just criticized Miko Koskinen, Koskinen, who was kind of upset about it, said he didn't like being thrown under the bus. My team's not scoring for me. All of it, like, it's not going well in a number of different ways in Edmonton. Yeah, no, it's not. And, you know, underlying profile, from an underlying profile perspective, they're not playing differently than they were earlier in the year. They're a mid-range team, five-on-five, that's had the third worst bounces in the league over the course of a month and a bit. And... You know, a lot of that is goaltending. A lot of that has been a level of five-on-five goaltending that's below 900, and it's really hard to win like that. Really hard. But you can't go – you can't have this stretch extend, and it's hard to see how they're going to get out of it against an elite team without the best player in the world. Um, But there's there's a few parts of this this Oilers skid – that I'd look at if it were happening to the Canucks and say like, hey, I'm not too worried about that. Like one thing that's happening to the Oilers a lot, for example, is they're getting dramatically outscored at five on five with Leon Dreisaitl on the ice. That's not something I'd worry about <laughs> as like a structural it's not issue. Continue. Yeah, that's not going to continue. Um, but they also know, set they set the table for themselves with some unsustainable results early. Totally. And everybody in Edmonton believed that was who they were. Right. Or at least at least closer to who they were. Right. That this was finally the year. And, you know, uh, look, they need they need that power play to get going. They do need to score more. Uh, They do need more saves. Like all of that's true. Um, But, you know, I I think people are hounding some of the moves Ken Holland made. And and quite rightly, I mean, I, I, I thought that the Oilers lacked creativity in a major way and using a massive arsenal of cap space. Uh, efficiently this offseason but you know over the like since December 1st like Duncan Keith's plus two in terms of goal differential five on five like you know you can beat up that signing and the CC signing is as moves where they could have done better with nine million in cap space and and you'd have my you know wholehearted agreement but I don't know that uh, I don't know that Keith's been the problem despite the bad read on that one Rangers goal um, the other day um, you know, the, the problem's been goaltending, which even Miko Koskin, and even if you don't believe in Miko Koskin, and he's better than a 900 goaltender at five on five as the sample expands. Um, and, and, you know, a second line issue with, uh, which is again, mostly puck luck, uh, you know, which Leon Dreisaitl outscored by six goals or whatever, uh, at five on five over the course of five weeks. And it's just like, that's not going to last. So We'll see. I, I'd expect the Oilers to pull out of this, but I don't know that they'll pull out of this tonight against the Leafs. And one wonders how dangerous a situation that is for Dave Tippett. Yeah, that's a whole different uh, question as well. Um, but uh, regardless, as far as the Canucks are concerned, Saturday against Ottawa, we will do our next podcast at some point next week. Hopefully you're on the road for that. Maybe we'll catch you at South Beach. Meanwhile, Ian Mendez and Down Goes Brown have the Thursday edition of the Athletic Hockey Show tomorrow whenever you listen to your podcasts. As for us, thanks for listening to the VanCast. Please follow us on your favorite podcast platform. Don't forget to leave a rating and a review. And right now you can get annual subscriptions to The Athletic for just $3.99 a month when you visit theathletic.com slash VanCast. And we will be back on Monday following the Canucks game against uh, against Ottawa and before their game against Florida. Yeah, that'll be fun. Um, I mean, it won't, I I definitely won't be on the road because of, um, you know, it, it, 
doesn't make sense to go on the road when all I'd be doing in, in person, like being there in person anyway, is Zoom. For sure. Uh, but you know what I do want is I, we, we should do this. We should do this VanCast on Zoom visually so we could just have a, you know, we can have a virtual background of you at the beach. <laughs> Sounds good. Hey, I, I want to quickly address one other thing. Okay. Um, one other thing. I was tweeting this week and I called the Canucks doing, they were doing lines, right? They were doing lines on the ice um, lengthwise, right? Like over the short stretch of ice in yep. practice. And I tweeted and I called it suicides. I called the drill suicides. And someone quite helpfully DM'd me and said, hey, look, there's a real emphasis in sports to maybe get away from using that word um, for, you know, reasons pertaining to mental health stigma. Um, and, uh, you know, suggested a bunch of other options that I use. Shuttle runs was the word that I used today. Um, and I thought that was, you know, quite right, like quite right. And I think we've all sort of been become more aware of these issues. And partly that's, you know, Bell Let's Talk. Partly that's hearing people like Tyler Mott and Corey Hirsch discuss uh, these issues. Right. And so, like, you know, I, I've tried to lose as much of it from my lexicon as I can, right? Like, you'll never hear me say, like, uh, well, sorry, not you'll never hear me, but you'll certainly never hear me in, intentionally. <laughs> I might slip on occasion because I'm still trying to do better. But, you know, things like that's an insane goal or like that's a crazy highlight or, you know, like I'm trying to use, I'm trying to lose those words from my sports vocabulary. And the other day, in the athletic comment, uh, comment section, there's a gentleman named Gordon who's always blasted every piece of analysis I've ever written at extraordinarily extraordinary length, mostly because it's failed to account for how bad a coach Travis Green is. And this has been going on for years. So I do this analysis of the Boudreau bump objectively, and he writes a comment, um, you know, detailing all the ways in which I've carried water for Travis Green. And I responded flippantly and just said, like, LOL, you're unhinged, my friend. And, you know, I'd... I sort of did it really quickly before going on air on Canucks Hour and didn't think twice about it. And then I heard some criticism of it on Twitter and I, you know, immediately was like, yeah, you know what? That's below my own standard. I've been trying to lose this, these words from my vocabulary and I quickly apologized. Gordon graciously accepted the apology. And, I, you know, it's just something that like <laughs> it's it's one of those things where, you know, for me anyway, this isn't like, oh, we're all so sensitive. Like, no, I actually think this matters. Like there's a ton of people and we don't know how they're going to react. Like we don't know how we as media producers don't know how different people will feel about the words we use, but we are trying to find a way to talk about this game in a way that's as accessible and pleasant and fun for as many people as possible. And even when, even when we're being quote unquote scare quotes negative, right? Like the point is, is that any Canucks fan, we want them to be able to put on the van cast or open the athletic and, and enjoy the content and not at any point be like, Oh, what the, f like that, you know, that's a word that reminds me of my demons or that's a word that reminds me of my real life struggles and challenges, right? Like that's something that matters to me. And so I messed up in that occasion. And I do think there's a really interesting discussion, especially in sports about how to begin to roll back the use of those phrases. And and in this market in particular, you know, we've had a ton of different ones over the years, like lunatic fringe or what have you. 
um, that I think need to be cons- reconsidered and, and need to be viewed in a different light. And I, I kind of think it's on the people who talk about this team the most, myself included, um, to kind of lead that charge. I, I screwed up yesterday. I just wanted to talk about it a little bit because, um, you know, I had a couple of different instances in it uh, of it this week. Um, you know, we are approaching sort of Bell Let's Talk season where mental health and sports will be a, a major topic of conversation around the industry. And just as a sort of scene setter, um, you know, this is an area where this year anyway, I hope to do a lot better, certainly than I did on Tuesday. Well said. I kind of went through the same exercise the other day, breaking down what's going on with Antonio Brown, because that's, uh, you know, certainly Tom Brady wanted us to look at that in a different light. And yeah, we've all got to take uh, take a bit of a step back in terms of how we view all of these things and not be flippant about it, but think before we use those comments. And yeah, both of us will make an effort to make sure we say it the right way on future episodes of the VanCast. Thanks for this, my friend. We'll talk next week. Have a great weekend. You too, man.